it's important for people to be able to disagree in a room privately. And then when the decision is made, they're to support the leader publicly. And that's decent enough, but I don't necessarily subscribe to that 100%. So going back to the humility and the vulnerability piece, I have no problem with people disagreeing with me in public. Like I, it's the fire ground, right? Like I'm going to give orders and probably 99% of those orders are going to be followed, especially if I know what I'm doing. But if a company comes back because they've got, you know, information that I cannot possibly see because I'm on the outside and they're on the inside of the fire to discount their feedback and not incorporate that and pivot and change to that, like that would be crazy. Mm -hmm. So why would I not do that at the firehouse or any other time I'm having a conversation? Like there needs to be something, I mean, it needs to be organic. It needs to be uh, what's called mutually constituted. Like you and I need to engage in it to have this conversation or else it's just a diatribe. It's just me kind of just talking about whatever. Good morning, everybody, and welcome to The Kitchen Table. In this podcast, we sit down with leaders from across the country to have real and honest conversations around all things leadership. We call it The Kitchen Table because we know some of the best conversations at the firehouse take place at the kitchen table. And the goal today is to focus the kitchen table conversations and talking leadership. So last week, we were in Texas and then California, and today we go to the East Coast to Henrico County, Virginia. Today in The Kitchen Table, we welcome Captain Benjamin Martin, of Henrico County Division of Fire, Virginia. Captain Martin provides leadership training workshops and keynotes internationally and throughout the United States. He blends over 20 years of public safety experience with his ongoing PhD study of human behavior and motivation to provide an entertaining and unfiltered view on a variety of leadership topics, such as interpersonal communication, command and control strategies, conflict management, and emotional intelligence. He is the founder of the popular website and leadership movement, EmbraceTheResistance.com, which focuses on supporting aspiring and existing leaders to develop strategies to navigate the challenges of leading others and, and themselves. In addition to his leadership blogs, he's a contributing author to several leadership books and has published articles in Fire Engineering, Fire Rescue, Fire Department Training Network, International Society of Fire Service Instructors, Firefighter Toolbox, and Firefighter Wife. He currently serves as an acting battalion chief with the Henrico County Division of Fire in Virginia. Good morning, Captain. Thank you for being a guest today on the kitchen table. How are you? Good morning. Thanks so much for having me. Of course. And when you came up to Redmond back in, I think it was January, I did attend one of your seminars and I will admit different, unique, but as well as uh, inspiring. So much of that I'll, we'll dive into in, in, with the conversation today, but before we do so, would you mind sharing a little bit about Benjamin Martin and maybe a little bit about Embrace the Resistance? Yeah, absolutely. So I have been in the fire service for just over 20 years. I started as a volunteer. And I think sometimes it's important to, to start there with my journey because I certainly didn't have it all figured out. And when we talk about leadership, we're talking about motivation and, and influencing others and influencing someone who gets a a paycheck every two weeks is certainly different than influencing someone who's volunteering their time after they go work something else that gives them their paycheck. So I've done both worlds and I have an appreciation and love for, for both aspects of the job. Um, but when I found out they'd pay me full time for this, uh, I came down to Henrico uh, after volunteering for two years and I've been with them ever since. And about 
probably seven or eight years ago, I started really having this uh, desire to kind of share some of my experiences, especially a lot of my mistakes in a formal leadership role, because Lord knows I was making enough of them. And when I was researching or even looking for articles, especially in the fire service on reading how could it be a better leader? A lot of times the articles were written from a lens that said, you do these four things and you will have success. And I was like, I still don't see, I still don't see how that's possible because people are so complex, including ourselves. And then when I started the, the doctoral work, that's where I was like, ah, okay, this validates what I, what I thought, which there is no cookie cutter recipe. There are certainly things you can do that will make you more likely and less likely, but uh, there's never a guarantee of any kind of output. So that's kind of been the journey. And then I started the Embrace Resistance when I started speaking because I needed to place a website uh, or even a Facebook page that would kind of help house some of my thoughts, collections, podcasts like this, and, and some of the writing that I've done over the years um, and presentation information as well. So very fortunate to have this opportunity. Appreciate your time. And um, I'd, I'd be curious to see where this goes over the next couple of decades. Oh, absolutely. And, and you mentioned doctoral work. So out of curiosity, you know, firefighter, 20 plus years. I'm curious what got you into both either leadership training, but also the doctoral work side of things, you know, not, not, at, not too many firefighters will, you know, willingly, you know, I'm going to go back to school, uh, let alone go for a PhD in human behavior and psychology. So I'm curious on that path. It's actually very inspiring to know that, you know, fire service leaders are going out of their way more or less to study and get that higher education. So I don't think really at the end of the day, it's any different than what anybody else is doing. Um, I feel like a lot of the books that I read for school are no different than the article I was handed many, many years ago, uh, Little Drops of Water by Andrew Fredericks. And the realization that I had after reading that and the importance to the history of the fire service and, and what I learned from it for its applications today, uh, if I could find that same thing, for the people side, uh, I don't know if I would be doing the PhD, but the, the way it kind of has happened is I've always been curious and the wanting of asking questions has not always served me well, to be honest. A lot of times it's had the inverse effect. People have, have looked at me as not having credibility because I've asked questions where really it's like, no, I've got a plan A and a B, but I'm like, I'd like to know what C and D and E and F looks like. Mm -hmm. And uh, especially with people when they offer me their perspectives on things, it's, you know, and we'll, we probably will get into this, you know, I, when I ask why, it's not because I'm challenging those things. It's just because I'm genuinely curious yeah. what I can learn from that, because I, I believe that all people have gotten value. Uh, and to think that they don't, you're missing the point of exercise, which is to kind of help them realize that for themselves and then leverage that to benefit the organization and the mission of the community. So, uh, with being curious, you know, once you exhausted the PDFs and fire engineering's website, I, I went and got a, a bachelor's in fire science. And then after I learned more about the fire ground, I was like, all right, well, I guess if I want to be promoted, I probably should learn more about the business of our organization. So then I did a master's in public administration. And once I got done with that, I, I felt good on the fire ground. I felt good on the business side, but I still felt like I was kind of missing something on the people side. Uh, and I get along well with people, but a lot of the struggles that I had were I had a very high standard for myself and I wasn't willing to ask anyone to do anything that I wouldn't do and hadn't demonstrated and wouldn't do with them. But even then, the reaction that they would have sometimes of just like, why? Like, this is too much. I don't understand. Like, I don't love the fire service the same way you do. 
Mm -hmm. I really wanted to know more about that. And that's what got me into the, the industrial psychology, the cognitive psychology. And a lot of the books that I was reading just for fun were starting to reference a lot of these fields. Uh, and then emotional intelligence was something that I had seen and written about more and more and more as if it was new and novel, but it, it really wasn't. I mean, it'd been around since the early nineties. Mm -hmm. um, and the fact that we were just getting around to this, you know, a decade later really showed you just the learning curve, the fire service as a whole is on. Oh, totally. And so I felt like, you know, even if I was just reading stuff about people within the fire service, I felt like that narrative was incomplete and I needed to go outside to the academic world to get a better understanding of it. Um, and that's been the last five years and knock on wood, if everything gets done, I'll be done in September, which wow. will be a whew, huge relief wow. on that. I will. Wow. Congratulations. That's uh, that's inspiring. Well, thank um, you. So uh, you mentioned curious and curiosity is something that we talk about a lot on this podcast. In addition, you, I think you talked a little bit about perspective, but curiosity is huge. Um, the fact that you were curious about, you know, you said you, you learned the fire ground side of things, you felt comfortable, learned the business side of things, you know, and you felt like you were good and you were comfortable and then you wanted to keep going and you mentioned curiosity, which is huge because obviously curiosity is, is, is a great human characteristics, if you will, let alone in leadership. Um, but as we talk about your leadership philosophy today, you talked about, people understanding both the why and the why not whenever possible or seeking the why and the why not. Can you go into a little bit about that? Because you mentioned that was kind of where your, your philosophy starts more or less. Yeah. So I think, let me, and let me just add a couple of things before I answer that question. So I think I'll change the tense uh, or the form of, of learned to learning, you know, and I think anything like, especially with leadership, I'm not, I don't even think leadership exists. I think what you get is leading and you get following. So it, you have to enact these things, you know, and, and I think if you ask anybody what their definition of leadership is, like they could probably come up with something, but so much often, especially around the kitchen table, a story's being told and you can hear it and you go, that's not leadership mm -hmm. or that's not a good follower. And, and so this action idea, I think, you know, leading, learning, following, all these things have to happen in action. And when you see it, you know it, and that's what people start to model and, that's what influences their conversations. So when I have talk about like the why and the why not, when, when we're being curious and when we're willing to share some of the reasons behind our decision-making, I think that demonstrates a humility mm -hmm. that is essential to leadership. But I also think it demonstrates a vulnerability that's essential to leadership too. Because if I'm asking questions, I don't have all the answers. Or if I, even if I did think I had all the answers, at least I'm willing to consider that I don't. Um, and when you genuinely do those things, I, I think that connects. I think that is something that really makes us relatable mm -hmm. uh, because I, I think that's obviously important. You're not going to model anybody that just really is just a, like, I've worked for people that are really good at what they do, but they're just robots yeah. and they're huh. like automatic programmed. And I just, I was like, I could never live to that to their standard. And I just kind of gave up on the relationship with them. And I, I could feel that happening to me and I, I didn't want that to, to be the case. Um, and so getting back to your question about the why and, and the why not, uh, there are lots of cliches in, in leadership that I try to make sense of and, and some prove out and some don't. And so there's one that you're probably familiar with and most of the listeners are that says something to the effect of, it's important for people to be able to disagree in a room privately. And then when the decision is made, they're to support the leader publicly. Mm -hmm. um, and that's decent enough, but I don't necessarily subscribe to that 100%. So going back to the humility and the vulnerability piece, I have no problem 
with people disagreeing with me in public. Mm-hmm. Like I, it's the fire ground, right? Like I'm going to give orders and probably 99% of those orders are going to be followed, especially if I know what I'm doing. But if a company comes back because they've got, you know, information that I cannot possibly see because I'm on the outside and they're on the inside of the fire to discount their feedback and not incorporate that and pivot and change to that. Like that would be crazy. Mm-hmm. So why would I not do that at the firehouse or any other time of having a conversation? Like there needs to be something, I mean, it needs to be organic. It needs to be uh, what's called mutually const- constituted. Like you and I need to engage in it to have this conversation or else it's just a diatribe. It's just me kind of just talking about whatever. So with that, uh, a lot of the stuff that helps or hurts our relationships is driven by fight or flight. Like when I say something and you're sensitive to it as a threat, that changes the pH of the conversation, the organicness of it as it evolves. So I've got to be aware of that. And so uh, what I tell people, and sometimes they believe and sometimes they don't, is as a leader, you absolutely should share whenever it's appropriate. When I say whenever it's appropriate, meaning you know what you can share, meaning like you have knowledge of it. Uh, if somebody's asking me a question about why and I don't, I don't know, I'm not going to make it up because it, it does no service to the constitution. Like, and it doesn't feel good to say, I don't know as a leader, but there's plenty of times that you should lean into that and say it because that's, it's important to have an authentic leadership voice. And that would be no different than being a yes man when giving feedback back to your boss. Like you need to say, I do and don't know when you, when you do and don't know. The other piece is timing. So obviously, you know, cliche, the fire ground is not the time to debate everything. But in most instances, unless it's a matter of safety, there's time. Even when you think there's not time, there's time. So taking the time to explain the why uh, is where I think our leaders, our leadership models and theories are evolving too in the fire service. I think we've gotten pretty good universally about accepting the fact that people want to know the why and that's good. Mm-hmm. But I don't think we've gotten to the inverse of that yet, which is the why not. Yeah. And the reason that's important is it feels really good to get things right. Like to get that feedback, that competence that I know what I'm doing. And if you can guess what the leader's going to do and you can get there, that would be a form of being proactive. It's going to feel good. Mm-hmm. If every time your battalion chief needs you to do something on the fire ground and you're already there because you anticipated what was coming, it, it's going to feel good because that battalion chief is going to learn that they can trust and you're going to be the go-to, and, and there's always go-tos. You better believe this. On every fire ground, there's a crew that shows up, hits the parking brake, and you're like, gosh, damn it. <laughs> I should have staged them. Why are they on this assignment? Uh-huh. And then in every other one, there's you know one or two companies where you're scanning, looking. You're like, please let that such and such show up because I know that that person with their company is going to be able to make things better, and I want them here. And you'll even go out of your way to add them or, or find them or give them assignments. So you want, to, you want that feeling. Mm-hmm. So when you have a why, you're naturally at a, at a fork in the road where a decision has to be made at any leadership moment. And you can go left or right. So why might explain why you want to go left, but it doesn't explain why you didn't go the other way. Uh-huh. And so as soon as you go left, you're going to come not very long down the road to another fork. And there's going to be a why and there's going to be why not. And if you don't ever pick up the why not piece of like, why are we always doing these things when we could be doing these things? It's always going to inhibit your ability to truly be proactive uh, Mm -hmm. and almost navigate your own path. And that's ideally what you want. This idea of decentralized command is that people can weigh their options 
decide amongst the best solutions and implement the best solutions. And so you have to be able to have an argument, almost a discussion with yourself, and you have to decide what is more or less important. What is the, and isn't the goal? Is it consistent with or without the vision and mission and values of the organization? And if leaders don't share that, why not? Yeah. Like there, it's an incomplete story. It's like walking into a movie halfway through Yeah. and you can see the rest of it. You can see who gets the girl and who the villain is very quickly, but you won't, you don't have the full context of, of what the story was. Yeah. And a lot of our culture is transmitted primarily by stories. It's by the things we tell the kitchen table that we celebrate and romanticize or discourage or just scoff at, or the things that get us upset. Like we're always queuing into those things. Mm-hmm. And without the why not, it's like a hero with no villain. Yeah. You, like you have to have an agonist and antagonist, yeah. um, a bicep without a tricep. Like it's <laughs> just incomplete, Yeah. but that takes time. And, uh, and time is a precious commodity of, of leaders. And I think that's why we genuinely appreciate leaders who are willing to spend time talking with us. Yeah. You know, no, even, absolutely. even if, uh, which is why the stuff like this matters, you know, it's yeah. important to to spend time talking about that. Yeah. So that's the why and the why not piece. Now, what's yeah. interesting that I have found going back to that threat, that threat of fight or flight is if you give the why or why not freely, no big deal. But when you ask people why, why did you do that, Berlin? Yeah. Why didn't you do this, Berlin? It, yeah. it can start to quickly have a negative connotation. Yeah. Uh, especially if you're asking someone that in front of a group of their peers or a team that they lead. So, uh, what is a better strategy? And I use this in difficult conversations when emotions are prevalent, because if you ever heard somebody say, you never do this, or you always do this, that's not rational because the odds that they actually do that are probably zero, mm-hmm. right? Maybe 0.0001% that they actually never or always do. Uh, but the thing that, that you're trying to characterize in that way shows you that the person's kind of giving into their emotions and yeah. not thinking strategically of the conversation. So the questions of what and how are really good ways to anchor their, their thinking. The answers to that come from something called the prefrontal cortex, which is what drives their elegant decision-making process. Like when you're being emotional, you get the amygdala, the fight or flight center. So when you ask somebody, like when I'm presented uh, out in the field, when I'm riding around and they say, hey, Cap, we don't understand why this decision is being made. And then I'll offer an alternative. Right. And I take the time to give them the why and the why not if I know it and they're still not there. I could ask them a simple question of given what you're leaning towards wanting to do, what would that look like for the organization? How would the organization go about doing what you're describing? And you basically are asking them to give you a blueprint of that. And a lot of times because, you know, as our organization gets larger and larger, the issues are complex. Mm-hmm. And it instantly, as they try to go step one, step two, step three in their brain, it starts to poke holes in it. And then they realize they don't have all the answers, which is probably true for all of us. I think yeah. even the fire chief, they don't have all the answers. And so it anchors the conversation. It starts to move the conversation back into the cognitive, the strategy, the rational of like, mm, well, you know, if you've ever asked a question out loud and you go, you know what? I answered my own question when I asked it. Yeah. That's what I'm talking about. Okay. So you avoid the emotional pull of, of someone challenging you, a feeling challenge when they say why, and then the what and the how are constructive ways to frame that Yeah. Uh, and just kind of keep that conversation on track. Yeah. Wow. Well, it, wow, you said a lot of uh, interesting points there. Um, I know you teach a, a class, if you will, and it's based around the uh, thinking strategically versus reacting emotionally. Um, but I think a lot of what you just said is 
It's exactly that. Like we do, we, as firefighters, we react on emotion all the time, you know, rightfully so. And sometimes not rightfully so. And you mentioned a lot of things like on the fire ground, there definitely needs to be, you know, you know, decisions are made and we go out and do things. And why don't we do, why don't we have those kinds of reactions, you know, back at the firehouse. And we've had, we've talked about this in the podcast a lot about a lot of issues in the fire service are actually not necessarily uh, operational issues. They, they happen at, back at the station. They happen a lot, you know, just the human interaction, you know, in the time, you know, you give a firefighter, you know, downtime and that's where the issues happen, but you give them a project and, you know, no, no problems happen because they're, they just, they're focused and they're, they're mission driven. It, it, it's, it's interesting that, uh, that the reacting emotionally piece, because in nature, firefighters react We're we're that's, that's the, the job. We, something happens and we react and we go. So I'm curious as to in your in your journey, if you will, the challenges in, you know, whether it be in your own fire department or as you, you know, teach, you know, nationwide or internationally, is how do you portray that kind of training to firefighters on, you know, taking the step back, you know, because fight or flight is a natural biological reaction, if you will, physiological reaction, but taking the step back to understand the why, the why not, to not just respond on the first response that you want to give, I, I'm guilty of it. I'll, I'll respond quickly on something. And I've been trying to make, do intentional work to, I'll listen to something. And, and, and instead of just reacting just on my first gut emotion, take a step back, understand the perspective, understand the why or the why not of what this individual is trying to say before, because how many times have we, you know, said to ourselves, Oh my gosh, I'm, I'm, you know, I'll think on that overnight. And then the next day it's like, oh my gosh, I'm so glad I didn't react on that, you know, instant reaction that I wanted to. So I guess the question that I have is, do you find it challenging to, to go out and teach what you teach uh, to firefighters and, or do you get a lot of pushback on this type of training on taking a step back and try not to react so emotionally on things? So it's, it's been funny. I feel like the appetite for this over the last seven, eight years is greater now. Um, I think it's always been there, which is something we had kind of started talking about before we started recording. But at least for me and my experience in the class and the topics that I'm teaching, I'm seeing rooms that are increasingly um, standing room only, doors getting shut. Like uh, that was my experience at FDIC, which was crazy uh, because I'm teaching in the same time slot as a lot of the people that I really want to see, like Aaron Fields uh, or Kurt Isaacson, um, some of the bigger names and the, our class, like they closed the door with 15 minutes to go. And there was hundreds of people out in the hallway that couldn't get in. Wow. And I can't explain, I can't explain that other than they thought I was somebody else um, or it was a, a location that was very convenient for them to get to. <laughs> so that's very, that's very humbling. Uh, yeah. To start. I do think there's an appetite, not just for my program. I, I know a lot of guys are teaching similar things or, or incorporating those topics and, I think that is what we should be doing is yeah. we should be listening to our audience, the questions they ask. And then as teachers or facilitators or coaches or instructors or whatever you want to call it, we should be attempting to focus on providing solutions to some of those questions or problems that they're experiencing. And I think art imitates life, right? So as I'm experiencing these things myself, like that's certainly what developed the program. And the irony is I think a lot of the great programs that you see and a lot of the great instructors they were born out of a need or an experience that probably wasn't great. You know, there's not a lot of programs where somebody got something right and they wanted to go on the road and talk about it. It's usually like things weren't going well and then they figured out something and that's what they want to share because they want to help ease the suffering 
or ease the frustration that people are feeling because they want people to be engaged and enjoy the fire service and coming to work. Mm-hmm. And so they're willing to share those experiences. Um, you know, that's something I get a lot too, especially from people that seem to be very close minded is, oh, it must be nice to be able to write and speak and say whatever you want. It's like false, like negative. Right. That's not, there may be some instructors that are motivated by that. And, and I do know those folks. Um, and I have a problem with those folks because I don't think that is the case at all. I am very, very aware of what I'm saying mm-hmm. and my emotions can get the best of me. And I definitely have, have had to walk some things back and own some things and apologize for things. But when I write something or I do podcasts like this, I'm going on the record. Yeah. And that's terrifying to think about at the end of the day, because I know if I feel like every year, every other year, I just have these monumental shifts in the way I think and the philosophies that I have, because I'm learning, right. And I'm, I'm trying to find better versions of things, including myself first and foremost. Yeah. And so there are things that I would have died like on the Hill preaching eight years ago that I fundamentally do not consider to be correct today, mm-hmm. but you will find me on record saying those things. Uh, and so there was a while ago where somebody asked me if, if uh, I was, and, and I don't know, maybe this was one of the first conversations you and I had about whether I would delete those things, whether I would go remove those things. That's right. And I, I don't, I don't have any intention of doing that because right. I think it is important to demonstrate the growth and the progress and like rungs in a ladder. I'm trying to get to a higher elevation in, in thinking but that doesn't mean that I'm going to take out the rungs behind me because right. the people that I want to come with are using those rungs to pull themselves up. And yep. so uh, I've got no interest in presenting anything as perfect or polished. It, yeah. it, it is very much what it is and it's yeah. growing. So um, I, I hope that this appetite will continue. I think there are so many challenges that we have and there are a lot of them are related. I don't think anything is, is, in of itself, just one thing. Like, I don't think mandatory overtime, like that's a problem we're having right now. Force hires, things like that. Short staffing, uh, that is not its only issue, right? That is an issue that is based in both recruitment and retention, but it also could be based on growth and the size of your organization as it needs to grow and adapt to the needs of the community it serves. So it's complicated is basically what I'm, what I'm saying. So you've got to be able to look at all of those things. And because of that, I think you're, it's always going to come back to people. People are your greatest solution to any problem you have. And they are your greatest obstacle to implementing that solution. Yeah. So being able to lead that is going to be very important. Wow. I, I, you said something powerful going back a minute or so you mentioned, because I do remember that conversation we had in January about, uh, you know, you going on record saying something and then a year later or six months later or whatever, you change your opinion or mind or philosophy on something. Should I go back and delete and make sure people didn't know that that was my viewpoint? And you're like, no, like, why, why would I do that? I think that's, that, that, that is so powerful because it goes to humility, which, which you talked about. We talked about that on this podcast is it's okay to, to grow, to change your mind, to change your opinion and, and to be publicly okay with, yeah, that's how I used to think. That was my philosophy before. I've changed. I've grown. I'm not hiding behind what I used to think because, you know, I've I, I've changed through the years. And I thought that that's a very powerful piece when you mentioned that is is it's okay to admit fault or wrong or change your opinion. And that's how you grow. We've talked about you can't technically, you know, grow without change by definition. And so um, that was a very powerful piece. You mentioned uh, followership. Um, I think it was uh, 
I must have been reading one of your articles, and uh, I'm just going to just ask a very basic question. Uh, how important is followership when it comes to leadership? I think it is equally as important. Um, I am consistently reminded that, and maybe if it's even skewed the other way, Berlin, if I'm being sure, honest. Like, absolutely. Um, you know, there are so many teams that I am aware of or even have been a part of that they collectively were better than the leader. Like the product that they put out was in spite of the leader, mm-hmm. not because of the leader. And I've watched great teams be tanked by poor leaders. And then obviously I've, I've watched teams that were not performing the way they needed to be um, up in, in their performance because of, of leadership. Um, I think the question probably more importantly is how important is the leader's ability to demonstrate followership. And that mm-hmm. is that that is where I would say it is. I think it is more important for a leader to be dem- to be able to demonstrate that they can follow than that they can lead. I really do. And it's it's one of those things, if you go back to what we talked about, where leadership and followership occur when they're being done, you know, as a verb rather than as an adjective yep. uh, in any given moment. And this could be included on the fire ground, right? So like going back to the example I used, when that crew that I trust calls out to me and says, hey, we know you gave us this assignment, but based on the conditions in here that we we're going to recommend this course of action. And obviously it's much more succinct than that because time matters. And I say, yeah, do that. Am I leading or am I following in that instance? Mm-hmm. Like I'm, I yeah. would argue that I'm following, right. you know, like, so there are going to be moments and I think Hollywood really does us no justice because we are, we have this picture growing up that leaders are to be like mm-hmm. listened to and champion and romanticized and heralded and put on a pedestal and they're infallible and they don't make mistakes. They mm-hmm. have our, they always have our best interest in mind and like all these fallacies about leaders that, that can, but not necessarily are true. And at the end of the day, really what it comes down to is like, there are certain times where you're going to defer in life and there are certain demeanors that you're going to carry yourself with based on who you're interacting with and the role that they have, whether it's Mm -hmm. personal, professional, their respect that you show them that the deference that you would show them when facing a situation in which you want to do something and they want you to do something else. And what you choose to take there like whether you take we might call it the high road or the low road like whether you honor that or you deferred or don't mm-hmm. like that sets the tone for everyone else like i know plenty of leaders that interact in toxic ways with their bosses and how could you possibly expect that your crew is gonna when you model that behavior is that to expect them to do the same for you right and right. so yeah like your ability to listen and follow is as important as your ability to give out instructions. Um, And I would argue that in leading, you have to have the ability to listen and get that feedback back from your crew. Yeah. Yeah. I totally agree. I mean, you gotta, I mean, feedback from everybody is key. And, and, you know, what do they say is, you know, without feedback, without honest feedback, how do you become better? Cause you're not listening to anybody else, but yourself. And so that's huge. Um, You're obviously big on, you know, building relationships. You mentioned valuing rock stars, but developing superstars, which I love, right? It's leadership is about, you know, valuing your people, but also mentorship and developing, developing them to then they can reach their percent, not only recognize, but reach their potential as well. So talk a little bit about that concept because I love it. Uh, So at the heart of that is that I truly look at leadership as a privilege. I have, I have screwed it up. And there are people to this day, 10, from 10 years ago, things I did and said 
whether I knew it or did it intentionally at the time, uh, they will not talk to me. They will not give me the opportunity to, to say something that might have influence over their mm-hmm. actions or beliefs. And like, I don't care what your definition of leadership is like, you have to have the ability to have some sort of influence. Yeah. And if they're not going to ba- listen to you from the get go, no matter what it is, then yeah. you, you're not leading anybody. I don't care what your title is. Yeah. So having had that experience, I do look at it that even people that I don't necessarily care for or agree with, or have some more beliefs, I'm still very appreciative of, of when they will spend time talking with me. Um, and my organization takes advantage of that because not everybody wants to go into, we call it the lion's den uh-huh. and, and have things lopped at them. And, but I will like send, send me like classically, like I'll go talk with somebody that we know is kind of being antagonistic because I'm genuinely curious and I don't have an agenda to change their mind. I just would love to know more about what is like impacting their thought process. Wow. Because just like mine, it's not anchored to any one particular moment it's possible that they're lacking perspective and information. And if they had that, they could make a diff, they'd arrive at a different conclusion. So yeah. let's approach that with a little bit of curiosity. Um, the rock stars and the superstars feeds into one of the, the mistakes and, that I first made. And I think a lot of leaders make is when you carry yourself with a high standard and when you enjoy what you're doing and you're passionate about the fire service, you really want those qualities and characteristics in your team. And when you work with individuals that don't necessarily have the same uh, qualities or even intensity of those qualities, then sometimes it's hard to relate. And if you don't have that relating, then obviously the relationship's going to suffer. And I've worked with, like I had one crew where I had a guy that was 21 years old and the oldest member was 65 years old. They obviously have different life experiences. They obviously have different goals out of their careers. They're in different, I call them phases or seasons. Mm-hmm. You know, one is sun setting and one's sun rising. Yep. And if I treated them the same way, that would that would likely not satisfy any of them, right? They none right. of their objectives would would be accomplished. And and so that's obvious, but the superstars and the rock stars really forces you to stop and, and think about this. Um, and rock stars are those folks that do a good job when they come to work. And when I say good job, that, that could be an average performer. Mm-hmm. Not everybody's a rock star, right? The minority of people are going to be really like really? good at what they do. Um, but it doesn't mean they don't have value to your right. team. Absolutely. And the, uh, the opposite of those are the superstars. And so those are absolutely your high performers, your people that are upwardly typically mobile bound, like that want to get promoted, that will take on more work than what they're, what they're doing. And so a lot of times the organizations will focus on the superstars exclusively and they'll, they'll forget about the rest of their workforce, which as a reminder is the majority of their workforce. Great. And we're always looking to see how the organization rewards us, including our leaders and what they discourage. And if you see the same people getting the same opportunities or when a new opportunity comes along, the same people get it. At some point, people tend to get discouraged. Mm-hmm. And I've seen people, and I've made this mistake, where you have someone, let's let's quantify this. Let's say you've got a guy that's got 25 years on the job that is going to be retiring the next six months. And if you treat that person as the same way that you're treating the person who's you know, 28 years on, or 28 years of age, been on for maybe six yeah. or seven years, yeah. and have an intense appetite to move up in the organization, if you try to give them the same opportunities that you give the guy that's getting ready to retire, that's like, that's not going to 
create a situation in which they feel motivated, they feel compelled, that's going to get the best out of them. And in fact, it's probably going to have the opposite. And there's plenty of people like great firefighters and you go to them and you're like, you should put in for promotion. And they're like, I'm just genuinely not interested in that. And then we look at them like, what's wrong with you? And it's like, no, no, they are in a rock star phase right now. Like you need them because the superstars are the ones that are leaving their teams quickly. They're Mm -hmm. bouncing around to different projects, different initiatives, different ranks. And if everybody was a superstar, then nobody would be left to anchor the the organization to what it's doing. Well, we'd always be chasing change and like, Mm -hmm. it would be a terrible place to work. Yeah, sure. So rock stars have value. Superstars have value. They're very different. Um, And when you're trying to provide opportunities that tap into what people desire, you, you have to understand that it's okay for them to desire what they desire. Yeah. And there's nothing wrong with that. It, yeah. There's absolutely nothing wrong with that. And people can change. They can become superstars and then they go back to being rock stars. Yeah. Like, yeah. A lot of times we push people into roles that push them a little bit beyond really what their strengths and passions were. And, sure. and you see this a lot, you know, people say I promoted too high or too early and like, there's no need to rush that along. Yeah. You know, just absolutely. generally appreciating people for what they bring. Yeah. I love that. And I'm going to, I'm going to tap into your, uh, your, your, uh, psychology, your psychology background here. Uh, Cause I love that piece about rock stars have their place. Superstars, they have their place. I think of any sports team, exact same thing. Not everyone is you know, the Tom Brady of the team and nor should they be. Right. But I want to talk psych- psychological safety, tapping into your background on understanding and teaching emotional intelligence within the firehouse. How, I mean, it's difficult. I mean, as we know, psychological safety is a precursor, if you will, to performance, uh, let alone high performance. You have to have that. And without it, you never know what uh, potential you're not tapping into, into your people. And so as we talk about emotional intelligence, we talk about interactions between individuals inside the fire stations, between rock stars and superstars. How do you foster that kind of environment to where you can then foster rock stars to then become superstars if the psychological safety piece is not there i know that's kind of a it's, it's kind of a it's a hard question to, to to quantify fully but understanding that you you won't have people to reach their potential unless there's an environment uh, of, of safety psychologically if you will uh, people that aren't willing to open up to be vulnerable to you know be open to having you know, honest conversations, uh, you know, whether leaders are unwilling to have the difficult conversations with those that need them. So can you touch a little bit on, cause I'm, I'm very curious on the psychological piece of, of high-performing individuals and high-performing organizations. Yeah. So I think you did a really good job setting that up and you, you almost answered the question in, in doing it. So psychological safety is this idea that we work in an environment or we have a tribe or a group that we can bring our whole selves to. Mm -hmm. So I don't have to hide any aspects of myself. I'm not worried. I don't have to dedicate any of my precious cognitive resources to monitoring who's trying to stab me in the back, who's Mm -hmm. stealing my ideas, who's subverting my credibility, who's character assassinating me. It's uh, we do such a good job. Almost. I think we've almost overkilled. Uh, the idea of focusing our physical safety on the fire grounds. But when we come back, um, we've all been part of conversations that we felt left us out. We've all been part of conversations where we felt like people were laughing at us instead of with us. We've been in conversations where we feel like our character 
um, or even our, like our dignity are being attacked. Mm -hmm. And, uh, and that's something that our organization had experienced a lot of, unfortunately, with our last fire chief. And he removed any semblance of psychological safety. And what does that look like? Uh, when ideas were presented to him that challenged his, uh, instead of welcoming them and debating them, he castized the, the people that were presenting them and retaliated in ways that would actually, uh, sanctimonious was the word that was used to describe him. He would present his arguments as morally superior mm. than, than theirs. Um, he would call people racist or bigots if they presented ideas that challenged DEI initiatives. Mm. And they clearly weren't. Like that, that's not the spirit in which they offered it. It was trying to arrive at a better product for workplace training. Um, and that pretty much expanded to anything, whether it was operations or admin, mm -hmm. uh, whether it was a small or large issue, people couldn't bring their ideas to the table because if, if that leader felt that he was being challenged, he yeah. would retaliate. Um, not physically, right. like, you know, most of, we always think about fight or flight as physical threats, but. Uh, mm -hmm. If you've ever been told off yeah. by somebody, like then the first thing you do is, all right, fine, then I won't help. I exactly. won't do this. Happens like, all the time. Know. And and so we withdraw, and that is a form of flight. Yep. So it's not that we're running away from people that want to punch us in the face. We, we, we don't want to work for people that we don't feel good doing it. Yep. Um, so and to your point, psychological safety is at the heart of pretty much everything that is leadership. If people do not feel safe bringing their whole selves to work, if they feel like their dignity is going to be mm -hmm. uh, attacked. And when I say dignity, what I mean is like they're feeling that they are inherently worthy of self-respect yeah, and then also being respected. If yeah. they don't feel like when they show up to work that the group is going to allow them to be ever respected, yeah, they're not going to stay there. Like, yeah. and when you look at like the, the cliche of people don't leave um, bad organizations, they leave bad bosses. Like that's a reflection of psychological safety. Um, the things that I study, like the counter uh, productive work behaviors, like the worst of the worst behaviors that employees have, so much of that is is traced back to the psychological safety that was or was not felt by the individuals. Yeah, um, agreed. Yeah, and totally. and so yeah, I mean that's just we could talk about that forever. But just to kind of, <laughs> I know. To, to, well, let me lead on a primer bit. of what it looks. I like. I love it, and I want to lean on it a little bit more because this is a piece I, I do love. Groupthink. How powerful is groupthink when we're talking about psychological safety? You know, when we got, whether it be, you know, new firefighters coming in or maybe it's a newly promoted officer uh, or just someone that's not a part of the in-group, if you will, um, someone that has a lot of, you know, value, you know, people, you know, are rock stars, you know, potentially be superstars. But if they're not part of the in-group, if they're not part of the group think, they have different ideas, but they're, they don't have that psychological safety of bringing them forward. How how hard is it to change groupthink or, or how hard is it to bring ideas forward when you have individuals that aren't part of that in-group, that popular uh, idea, you know, someone that has a different philosophy on things? How, how challenging is that from the psychological standpoint of things? So it can be very difficult. A lot of it depends on who the individual is that's trying to challenge the groupthink. So the more positive leadership attributes that you have, um, whether that's your emotional intelligence or your ability to build relationships or consider different perspectives, the willingness to display vulnerability or humility, all, all of the things that we've already talked yeah. about and so many things that we haven't mentioned, um, your ability to navigate the resistance that comes from that is, is going to be influenced by the skill set that you bring to the table, so to speak. 
that said, it's not just you, right? Yeah. It's, there's other factors like the organization's culture. Like, what are you challenging? Is this group think that's rooted in a hundred years of tradition? Yeah. Or is this something that's just localized that these are just a group of five idiots that happen to be a very small part of the organization and you're actually, uh, your beliefs are based in the dominant culture and they are the counterculture and you're mm -hmm. trying to go in there and change that. Um, then the reality is that you, there's just some group think that you're not going to be able to change or challenge and, and maybe it's not even yours to change or challenge. Like, sure. you know, like we, we conflate and confuse things a lot. Uh, and there's something called um, misattribution theory or attribution theory. When we look at someone where there's an undesirable outcome or effect, we'll look at it. If we look at ourselves as the catalyst for that, we'll go, well, Typically, it's something to do with the environment. Like, I didn't have the right resources. I didn't have the right information. I didn't have the right clearance or permissions. That's why it went that way. Mm -hmm. But when we look at other people, it tends to be about them and their beliefs and their abilities. Like, such and such just wasn't the right person for that. Mm -hmm. Such and such didn't have the right skill set for that. Like, we don't, we start, we don't give grace, I guess is what I'm saying. Yeah. Like, yeah. when it comes to us, we got a list of excuses. But when it comes to others <laughs> and, and holding them accountable, all of a sudden it's, it's all on them. And so like when we talk about group think, I'm always curious about like, who's the dominant member, who's the alpha that has, you know, perpetuated this and is perpetuating this, but also like, how did this get built? And, and is it a reflection of the larger culture or is it localized? Mm -hmm. uh, does it matter? You know, like it doesn't, you yeah. know, it, in most instances it, it doesn't, but if you get into a place that, is unhealthy changing that group think ha usually has a lot to do with changing the, the culture of that group yeah and that is not something that is done overnight it is a it's yeah. it's a big ask it's a process, nor is yeah. it something that can be done by every leader like who you are to them the credibility that you bring the reputation that you have the skill set you have those are all things that will help or hurt your ability to do that yeah. and there's plenty of instances where i have asked someone else with more of those things whatever they were a better skill set, more credibility, like yeah. the relationship they had with that individual or individuals was like better than what I had. It was more developed. So I, I, I asked them to help. Like I was willing to ask for help on those things. Um, and I definitely like leaning into growing my perspective and not just thinking that I was right. Right. Uh, and trying to find more where we were in common yeah. and we were, we were different was a is a big thing. Like that's a definitely a big strategy for resolving and managing conflict is start with, with where you're alike, mm -hmm. start yeah. with what's familiar instead of focusing on what's different, which is what we tend to jump to in that. Oh, I um, like that. But in, and in some instances of group think I've come around to it. And in some instances I've resisted it and, and we just agreed to disagree. And in some instances I was able to influence and, and ultimately change that and, and everywhere in between. Yeah. Um, the biggest thing is like when we were, <laughs> Like when we evolved, we had to have tribes, right? Like mm -hmm. before we had indoor plumbing and a grocery store that we could go to 24 hours a day for food and a pretty predictable shelter, you had to rely on other people. And some of those people left the tribe and would go out and, and hunt the food and bring it back. So you had to trust them that they would bring food back and not eat it all themselves. Mm -hmm. And the people that went out had to trust that the people that they left behind wouldn't cannibalize their babies or their kids or leave, move camp, yeah. you know, like yeah. there was always this trust. When you went to sleep, you had to trust that someone would stay awake 
and not let you get eaten by the thing that rumbled in the bushes. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so we had it like biologically, we have evolved to have a very rich connection to a sense of belonging. Mm-hmm. And we are like, you called it, I think in member and out member, like that's how it's referred to in the, the academic world. Um, yeah. Something called leader member exchange, right? Like, am I on the inside of the circle? Or am I on right. the outside of the circle? Right. And even when we're inside the circle, we are constantly expending resources in our brain to monitoring the status of that to see if it's improving, staying the same or getting worse. Uh, and when you lack psychological safety, it's the same as lack, lacking physical safety. Your brain is dedicating more resources than it needs to yep. to monitoring the situation. And it is it doesn't feel good at yeah. all. It is very unsettling. And it is what drives a lot of the anxiety that we're feeling. Yeah. So we're not just talking about like trying to prime our, our teams for performance with this psychological safety. We're talking about like wellness benefits. We're talking about yes. physical ailments and illness Agreed. when these things aren't provided. And this is what drives a lot of people away from leaders and ultimately out of the door of the organizations. Yeah. If you show up and you don't feel related to the people that you're doing the work with, and it's not just about they look like you or they think like you, it's, it's a whole host right. of factors. And you don't relate to the work they're doing or the spirit in the way they're doing the work. You're not going to stay. You're going right. to go. You might try a few different places on the way out, but depending on how strong that violation of those things is, like how hard your dignity is attacked, like that's when I usually tell people like you can do a lot of things, but when you when you try to take away someone's dignity, mm-hmm. then that's usually when lawsuits get get launched. Yeah. Right. Like agreed. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, I have a, a rhetorical question, but uh let's ask it. So it's a leader's job to provide that environment for their members, whether it be members from the out group or in group to, for them to welcome their, to bring their ideas forward, to bring their thoughts forward, to open up Mm -hmm. leaders job to make sure not, not just, um, you know, they should, but it's requirement of a leadership to be able to make it known, if you will, that this environment is safe for everyone to come forward, to bring their ideas forward. Even if we disagree on something, bring them forward. It makes us better. Half rhetorical and half what happens when that's not the case. Cause let's, let's be honest. Cause that's not an ideal world. That's the case. Everyone will show up to work knowing that they're they're It's going to be psychologically safe to bring ideas for day in and day out, but we know that's not reality either. Um, there's environments and cultures out there that are unwelcoming of all that. So um, navigating that as a new, we'll say an aspiring leader, right? A lot of our listeners today are aspiring leaders, emerging leaders, whether it be in the company officer role or, you know, uh, mid-level in the organization, creating that kind of environment or a characteristic in themselves to, you know, it, it's my job to speak up, but it's also my job to help foster this environment where everyone can come bring their ideas forward. It's a challenge. How do leaders build that arsenal, if you will? So I definitely think uh, a large part of it's modeling, right? It's um, we process 80% of the information that we're taking in, and it's about 11 million bits of information a second. 80% of that's processed visually, right? Like mm-hmm. movies are easier to watch and understand than, than listening. Like if you were going to watch a sports game, you'd get more out of it than listening to on the radio uh, or reading about it in the paper the next day. So your experience definitely is enriched. Uh, through modeling. That said, uh, a lot of times, and I think the difficulty of, of transitioning in your example from, you know, someone who isn't leading to somebody is, is as 
a follower, you receive a lot more than you give. Um, and relationships really are at, at its heart where you go to give, you know, the, the healthy relationships are where both people show up to give and in doing so they both receive. But as a leader, you have to be willing to give and not receive, which is crazy because you think as a leader, you're supposed to get more, like I'm supposed to get praise and recognition. And it's so many times you're not going to get those things, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. but you might get blame. Sure. Like and that doesn't, that doesn't, or a hard time. And none of those things feel good. You, so right. you go in thinking, uh, you know, with your eyes partially closed, like, and again, I think that has to do with a lot of how Hollywood portrays these things and how we tell stories um, of these things. Uh, and so trust is a wonderful example uh, of how this works. So I hear all the time, trust and respect. You've, uh, to, you know, to you got to earn my respect. And it's like, mm, no, no, not, not really, right? Like mm -hmm. at the end of the day, if I am introduced to you and I can instantly tell you don't respect me, that's not a good way to start the relationship, Yeah. okay? And, and clearly going back to this topic of dignity, I come with a certain level of self-respect. Now that it might be misinformed. I might think I'm better than I actually am. And there can be some realignment or reconciling of that. But if you and I don't have a relationship, even if you're my boss and you tell me I'm not great at something, I'm like how much weight is that going to hold in my mind? Right, right. Yeah, yeah. Because I'm already focusing on what makes us different rather than what makes us alike. But if there's a rich relationship there, a deep one, and it matters to me what you think, mm -hmm. then you may not be my boss. You may not be in a formal position, a leadership position, but I'll still listen yeah. and defer to what you're, which, and consider what you're saying more. And that's really what matters. And that's really what we talk about. Like leadership doesn't need rank to, to do anything. It, yeah. it can open doors. It is a full multiplier when it's used correctly. But mm -hmm. at the end of the day, like to accomplish the things that, are in my definition of leadership, you don't, you don't need it, which is that to exert influence and to make decisions. You can do that from an informal position every day of the week. Yeah. Um, and the, the, the great leaders figure that out and they let their folks do more of those things. And that's the idea of developing leaders behind you. Yeah. Uh, so what happens is, again, it goes back to being in group and out group. When someone shows you disrespect, if I'm the leader and you show me disrespect, then there's this subtle urge, at least for a moment to, like one up them. Like, I'm going to retaliate. Like you don't, I didn't deserve it. Or even if I did deserve it, like mm -hmm. the goal is I can always one up you because I'm the leader and I'm supposed to be the end all be all. And so I hear a lot of times leaders say, you know, that person has to earn my respect or, uh, you know, trust is earned, not given. And it's like, no, right. Mm -hmm. Because at the end of the day, because we're monitoring for those things that are threats, when you have someone who is leaning in, showing you respect, even when you haven't deserved it, that is a bridge. That is an olive branch. That is an outward hand. That is humility. That is exactly. vulnerability. And even if that person doesn't take it, the other people on the team see it. Yeah. And what it does is it sets the stage that even if I didn't take it this time, it is safe that it's possible that I could return to it and take it later. Mm -hmm. And you do that enough. And this, I mean, this really is, you know, turning the other cheek. It's what you learned about the school. Right. It's treating people the way you want to be treated. That's right. um, and and what it does is, I think, in my mind, is it keeps you from getting to that point where you are sanctimonious, where you are judging people when you were misappropriating what their motives are for doing things. It just keeps you in a position where it allows people to show up for themselves. Yeah. And at some point, if you do that long enough, 
they will show up with their whole selves. And that might be a terrible thing because you might find out things that you don't want to know about them. And, but a lot of times it's the opposite and more so it's the opposite. Exactly. And I, and the number of times where I've said, man, I had no idea you knew that or yeah, absolutely. Or like, uh, and the, and the more that happens, the tighter the bonds get, the more it can resist the bad. Yeah. Uh, When relationships are loosely formed, that's what can be broken apart very easily. But when you've got, um, and I think this happens by sharing a lot of the mistakes that you've made. I think when people hear that and see that, like, that's where we're getting into mentoring. Like, yeah. what is a mentor to you? And how did, how did that happen in the first place? You probably had a question and you probably went to someone for advice and you liked the way you felt yeah. as a result of their advice, whether it helped or didn't help. Yeah. And that's probably what drove you to ask them a second time. Yeah. And then a third time. And because you showed genuine appreciation and enthusiasm for talking with them. They liked the way they felt. So when you came back that second and third time, they engaged and it just kind of matured over time. Yeah. Um, but if all they ever did was share how they won, I mean, it's obviously something I'd want to know and important to talk to, but mm-hmm. at some <laughs> point, like, you know, I'm going there to take and I'm not going there to give. Yeah. And that relationship is always going to be limited by that. Yeah. Oh, mo- I mean, modeling behavior. I mean, it, it's simple concept, right? But but it's so true. Lead by example, right? We all know that. And that's, uh, mm-hmm. I love what you said. The 80% is, uh, what did you say there? You said the 80% is visual. There's visual. And that's, I mean, it's, it's like, we know that, but so we need to then know that and practice that and not just, oh, 80% is, you know, is, is visual and then ignore the fact and everything that we do and interact and train. It's like, no, leading by example uh, is, is huge. And so model the right behavior or model the wrong behavior at the end of the day. You're modeling the behavior for someone to then copy you, right, wrong, or indifferent. But I'm going to lean on uh, one more piece of of the psychological piece here because that's the stuff that I, I love. Adult learning. So uh, you study a lot and you do teach on adult learning because uh, it's 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 such a it's not a it's not revolutionary by any means um, in the fire service. But the difference between adult learning and you know child learning. Um, but also the adult learning theory, right? Malcolm Knowles, Andrew Goji, so on and so forth, but difference, but also um, there are times where we don't utilize the adult learning concepts and what we do in the fire service, whether it be from, you know, the teaching standpoint, the mentorship standpoint, recruit academies, whatever it may be. I, I guess the question itself can go four hours in discussion, obviously, but I, I love the adult learning theory. I'm trying to indulge myself more in utilizing those concepts in the way I teach but tell me a little bit about your experience with the adult learning theory and relating it to the fire service specifically over the last, we'll say five, 10 years. Yeah. So there are first and foremost, lots of different theories that explain adult learning. So there is not just one, uh, but one of the more prevalent characteristics that they agree upon is adult learners uh, prefer to learn by applying the experiences that they have had in life to the information that is now being presented to them. So what, uh, I would offer that isn't unique, but you probably and, and your listeners have not probably heard is the difference between knowledge and wisdom. And so um, Socrates talked about this when uh, he would pontificate about the difference between knowledge and, and wisdom. And so what he had to say on it pretty much was knowledge is something that you you learned. And then wisdom is when it's validated through experience. Mm. And so there are so many things, whether you want to call it your gut, like I'm, I'm doing this because of a gut feeling 
really what that is, is that is wisdom. That is an experience that you have had Mm. that is related to the situation you're feeling and whether you can or cannot articulate why you went with your gut. There's something in there that your brain is recognizing and it's using your gut to communicate to you. Like you're getting butterflies, you're getting, uh, sometimes you can get like GI issues. Mm -hmm. Like it's letting you know, I recognize this. There's something there. Pay attention to this. This is the bearing that I think you should do. And in most instances, it's, it's correct. Mm -hmm. And like keeping it simple, it it really is. Um, and so one of the things I have learned, and this is a challenge in teaching is I go, like, if I go to FDIC or FRI and I've got 400 people in a room, I've got people that are just starting their careers out at 18 years old. And I've got people that are falling asleep in the front row because they're 75 years old and they like. They just needed a place to sit and my class happened to be it and everywhere in between. And it's very, it's very challenging to have an engaging class that offers something to each of them uh, because their needs and what they're looking for and the, and the things that they're scanning in what I'm saying and the examples I'm using are are all different and they can have different appreciations because, and some are parents, some are husbands, some are divorced, some are single, like everyone's got different experiences. And so the challenge to use that again is that it's like we all have in common is this human condition. We all have in common. What we've already talked about is that we want to be part of something. We want to be part of a group. And so I try to really focus on what are some things, what are strategies and what are actions that the research has proven that make us feel more or less out of that group. And if they're 18 years old and they haven't made all these mistakes, maybe they get an appreciation for how proactively they could offer these things in their career as it plays out. And then I think a lot of times, like, especially for me, some of the stuff I say offers them a chance to be introspective and look back, you know, in time at examples and see things differently, which is called cognitive reappraisal. So they're able to arrive at a different conclusion on on a previous set of experience, which helps them learn like that, that piece is really important. That's self-reflection. And so all that is to say, like, there's social awareness and then there's self-awareness. Mm-hmm. And so sometimes people need a little help recognizing how the group is doing because of them and their interactions. And then sometimes people need to see how they are doing themselves yeah. because of the internal monologue that they've got going on in their head yeah. and that there's growth and, and opportunity to improve both of those things. But it's not for me to say, right. You know, and I, I think like, that's always joke. Like if there, if there was a never statement that I could make in leadership, Telling someone what they should do is probably as close to it as, as I get these days, where when you come to me and you're like, you know, Ben, I've got this problem and I hear you out for all of like 10 seconds. And then I go, you know what you should do? That's the worst thing I could possibly do for you. Like you have the most information about that situation. And the reality is you're probably not presenting to me unless we have a great relationship, you're not going to present it to me as your whole self. You're going to withhold some things that might not make you look so great. Right. Or there's a a image that you're trying to preserve in my mind. Whereas if we're best friends or we've got a very, uh, you know, richly developed work relationship and we have failed and we have succeeded together time and time and time again, let's just cut to the chase. Let's get the bullshit out. And and we don't have to worry about setting up this false thing to discuss. Yeah. But at the end of the day, even if we have this rich relationship, I know that you still have got information. Even if you don't know that there's things, there's factors that you have observed that aren't consciously being recalled for you because you don't think they're important. Mm -hmm. And if I tell you exactly what to do, 
one, I take away some of the autonomy in your decision-making process, Mm -hmm. which I don't want to do. I want to support that because that is a fundamental aspect of your internal motivation. So I want to support that. Two, it feels good competency-wise to see your thoughts play out and get the result back that it was the correct thing to do. Um, And if it doesn't, it automatically puts you closer to knowing now the next step to doing what's what's needed. Whereas if I give you a prepackaged solution, you have very little input into it. You have very little autonomy in enacting it. And if it fails, you're going to be, it's going to be harder for you to associate why it failed because you're not going to see yourself in the solution. You're only going to hear my voice yeah. and my thoughts, yeah. uh, which is one of the reasons I like to teach in stories because you hear the things that tend to emphasize what you're looking for in that story. And yeah. there's a cliche, right? You heard what you wanted to hear. Yeah. That's that's what I'm speaking to in there. So I, I think that's important um, to give people a place where they can say things out loud, which one, it matters because how you process language is differently when you hear it versus when you think it, which yeah. is why you've, you've probably said at some point, I don't know why I said that out loud. It sounded better in my head. So you need to have a, a safe place where you can say things that sound stupid or may have sounded smart, but in the end of the day, be, were stupid. And where I go as a leader is I try to maintain um, the ability for you to have this conversation and introduce perspective that you may or may not have. Yeah. But I need to see you wrestle with it. It's yeah. not for me to take the, the problem from you and fix it for you. My job is to support you in yeah. fixing your own problem because yeah. the chances are the same problem is going to play up again. Mm-hmm. And if I, you're always coming to me as a leader to fix your problems, I'm a shitty leader. Right. right. And you're right. not going to have a very rich, rich career. Like yeah. you like competence, improving your competence is important. Yes. And it takes more time, which is why a lot of leaders don't do it. And yeah. I, I was thinking about this the other day. Like when I was in the field teaching new paramedics, we called it precepting. Um, sometimes you might call it field training. I don't know what the, the word is. Like people go out, get their paramedic certification, then they went come back to our organization they have to learn to do things our way of doing things. Yeah. And at 3 a.m., when they're learning to write a call sheet, it would be very easy for me to just say, hey, I'm going to write this one because I can get it done incrementally faster so yeah. we can go back to bed and we'll talk about it in the morning Yeah. versus sitting there and hashing it out and talking about it. And and maybe I think you've got the bandwidth to do it in that moment and maybe we do need to table it to the morning. Like, yeah. But a lot of times I'll bring problems to leaders and then they just want to take it from me like summarily gift wrap it and give it back to me. But it's like, this isn't what I was asking for. Like, this is a, this is not at all. Yeah. Because you process it through your lens and you just didn't want to deal with it or whatever the reason was. Yeah. Yeah. It's definitely something we, we, we tend to do and we shouldn't be doing. Yeah. So, um, is the fire service lacking, obviously opinion based, but also through research and your studies, is fire service lacking concept strategies, of adult learning. I mean, you mentioned, you know, you got to involve, you know, the, the learners in, with the stories, experiences, and less talking to them, but more involving them. You know, it's, it's, it's instead of just standing, telling, this is what you do, this is how we'll do it. And, you know, here you go. Now, good luck. It will be lacking in the concepts of adult learning in, in your eyes. And obviously in the way that you teach is a very, I mentioned at the very beginning, uh, the way that you, when I attended your class back in January, it was very different. It was unique. It's like, oh my gosh, this, these concepts, what he's talking about and the way you engage the audiences, it's just very different. And it was like, I need, we, I mean, we need to have, you know, Kent Martin on the show and talk about a lot of this stuff because a psychological piece is huge because at the end of the day, the, the, the end goal, I think we would all agree 
is to get whether it be firefighters or our listeners or audience to comprehend the information or whatever that is and how we get there. There's different ways to get there. There's lecture, there's study on your own. But if at the end of the day is to gather as many of the audience to comprehend the information to then put it into practice, then we need to be different on how we teach or present. And a lot of that is through adult learning in my eyes, especially when we're teaching, like you mentioned, you know, 20, 30, up to a 75 year old, if you will, because the, the, the concepts of teaching, how we teach, you know, whether it be, you know, elementary or, you know, high school is different to the human brain and psychology itself. So I guess the question is the fire service lacking a little bit in adopting adult learning strategies, if you will. And if so, how do you bridge that? So, yeah, I mean, I do think, um, you know, I was, as you were asking the question, I was really trying to think about examples in my mind because, you know, I've taken instructor one and two classes through state fire programs and it's in there, right? Um, but I, I took it 15 years ago and then what? Like, yeah. so the opportunity I think is like, we, even within that class hosted by my organization, what opportunities were there to then apply what I was learning? So I got some knowledge yep. in a book, but I didn't have any experiences. So did I have wisdom? Mm, not necessarily. So like when I came up, when I got the chance to be the training lieutenant, now, I mean, now we're talking about what, eight to 10 years since I had taken that instructor class mm -hmm. and how much growth had happened between right. learning the material and actually implementing it. And then how was that going to incorporate into my performance as a training lieutenant? So I think there's things we can do. So one of the things that like I did uh, was we actually had instructor training sessions where we like I would actually lecture about some of these things and we would actually practice like teaching to ourselves, not just recruits, like trying to give feedback about like, hey, this is this is a this is how I do it. This is a way that you might want to do it. I liked how you did that. Like we gave each other's feedback and that process of going through it and getting feedback is what allowed us to get from knowledge to a, the wisdom piece of like I tried it. I know how it feels. I like it. Um, there's a lot that leaves uh, to be desired in terms of like the curriculum we're using. I see a lot of stuff that's just very dated. It's very incomplete. Like leadership theory and modeling is is always evolving because people and their needs and the environment, the socio-political context in which leadership emerges, like it's just always changing. And so that material needs to change too. Like Probably the most well-known example I give is Maslow's hierarchy of needs, which yeah. seems to be like a classic staple. So I can tell you academically, false. It, it, it is not proven in any of the research uh, when it comes to, to leadership stuff. What it is, however, is a framework mm -hmm. to anchor important concepts because some of the things are true and you have the ability to, to basically just utilize it as a way to have a conversation about those things. Because otherwise it would be very hard to do that. Like what's self-actualization mean to you? Mm -hmm. So you have to have some examples of that. Uh, but to present it in a linear fashion that moves one phase to the next, is not true. It's, it's not how it plays out in real life. Like yeah. if I had to satisfy everyone's physical needs first, like there are groups that, that I know that will go out at midnight and train mm -hmm. to see their district in a different light, like I like at dark, right? Mm -hmm. Um, and that's not something I necessarily want to do, but I can appreciate the perspective and I can appreciate the fact that they're willing to do it. Mm -hmm. So they're sacrificing one of the things that's in Maslow's first tier of physical needs 
for something because they're, they're pursuing that highest level, that self-actualization yeah. level. Yeah. Um, so it's just stuff like that where yeah. like anything you learn is probably not going to give you hundred percent of the answer. Yeah. And until you apply it to your own circumstances, again, going back to that wisdom piece, you're not going to, you're not going to have that, yeah. which is why. And I think backing up even further, that's something we really suffer from right now. You can have someone brand new in the job, come in, you can ask them a question. They can look it up in Google. Mm-hmm. They'll give you an answer and the answer is correct. Is that knowledge? Right. Is that wisdom? Right. 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 Like it's information. And that's really right. what, yeah. And that's yeah. like our ability to refer inf- to information is a lot different than our ability to retain information. Mm. And a lot of the times, even how we learn the things we pay attention to or the things yeah. that we think are relevant yes. to our goals in learning as well as our gaps in learning. Yeah. So if socially our, our goals of learning like the standard is low, then we're missing an opportunity. Yeah. Or if they're too high, we're also missing an opportunity because then what creates is a gap that's too big to reach. And so like, yes, there's way more things that we need to do to incorporate the adult learning theories that are out there and understanding those as well as looking how technology is influencing how those things happen and occur. Um, And the role that your organization has in facilitating those experiences, that's a much, much larger issue because we might actually get into something where we talk about, I don't know, leadership development at that point. Yeah. Like, yeah. And do we have those yeah. in most organizations? And I, the answer is no, or not I well, know. a lot of. Oh, and I, oh, yeah, you're, and you're totally right. Like how many, how many of our organizations we've talked about on this podcast, do our organizations have formal mentorship programs, formal leadership programs, classes, mandatory, right? We men, you know, we mandatory quarterly training for X, Y, Z. Uh, is there a reason why we don't have mandatory training for mentorship, emotional intelligence, leadership, right? I mean, um, the, the people skills, conflict resolution. Um, so I, I love that piece. I'm going to jump right here because I love this part is what's non-negotiable for Captain Benjamin Martin when we're talking about trying to create a high-performing self-leader organization. So I uh, there's a, a few items that, that jump out at me. And some of those are, are probably in leaning to more recent experiences, but sometimes something is just so profoundly irritating that it just kind of sticks with me. And, and I think one of the things that I see at work, and I also see this a lot as I'm traveling and speaking is this idea that success is uh, zero sum, that if I am credible as a Lieutenant or a captain or battalion chief, it means that you cannot. And if you, we are in a situation in which people are seeing you as credible, I view that as a threat where it's taking away from my credibility and so many of our conversations or disagreements are based on, I feel like I'm losing something by conceding um, or by deferring. And the, the reality is it's not like, mm-hmm. you know, we absolutely can be great at the same time for the same reasons or for different reasons. Mm-hmm. And there's, there's nothing wrong with that. And it, I think it still goes back to fight or flight, like the sense of loss. Like we have something called loss aversion where like it takes twice the amount of reward to offset losing um, the same amount of risk. Mm-hmm. Like, and we just like, that's why we hold stocks as they're free falling because we're afraid to sell off. Um, we stay in relationships that are bad for us a little bit longer than, than we should because like what else is out there? Like the idea of doing something new is scary. Um, yeah. And that's a lot of the reasons why some of our habits are still the way they are in the fire service. Um, yeah. And so yeah. people don't want to lose things. And so when we introduce change, we have to factor that in, right? It takes yeah. a lot more for people to leave something 
than it does for them to, to accept what's new. Um, and so we, like when they don't have any experience, and I think that goes back to your adult learning thing, yeah. like people who are willing to, they can learn things easier when there's nothing that it's being replaced by yeah. uh, because we don't have those experiences that we're reflecting on. So with that said, like if I, I see people uh, who won't get, you know, a speaking thing that they put in for, and then they have a pity party on Facebook and it's such a turnoff mm-hmm. or, you know, there's never been a perfect promotional list in my organization. But if I have to sit here and listen to you tear down somebody that did get promoted because you didn't, or you you were already that rank and now they're promoted to your rank and now they're your peer, but you're tearing them down mm-hmm. because all of a sudden you feel like your rank matters less. That's such a turnoff for me. Like yeah. it just, like if you have to validate what you do or don't do exclusively based on what happens around you to others, yeah, like you can't genuinely be happy for others. Like that's, that's not a behavior that is going to make for a good teammate or a good leader or a good Good follower. And I'm just like, so that's, I, I, I'm pretty sensitive to that. And I like, and it's certainly the opposite of humility and Mm -hmm. vulnerability. Mm -hmm. And so like, that's, that's something that stands out at me. Um, when it comes to having hard conversations, there's times where I've noticed leaders, haymakers and jabs, like, Jabs are little subtle course corrections. Jabs are little like hints of things. And then haymakers are these, I mean, they're big, grandiose. A lot of times they're public in front of your, in front of your coworkers or other hmm. people in the organization. It's not in private. And, um, you know, jabs are strategically used to set up what comes next. And yeah. so in boxing, it would be a, a big punch, a knockout punch, right? Jab, 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 jab. And then, you know, whatever the big overhand punches on that or the haymaker. But if you're only leading with the haymakers, a lot of times those are based in your emotions It's because you feel a certain way. And so you're trying to, you know, retaliate, even though you wouldn't call it that in the moment. And that obviously doesn't contribute to psychological safety too. So sometimes somebody's talking about their accomplishment and then somebody puts them in their place or they try to undercut them. And, And it almost feeds back into the first item about, you know, success is not a zero sum thing, right? You can talk about trying to be a good leader, but your actions and your words, how you treat others are going to show me really whether you value them or whether you're just valuing this opportunity to make more money and and be at the head of the table. Um, So those, that's another one. And then uh, I had previously mentioned this, like leaders who present themselves as morally superior or beyond reproach um, or, what's the word I'm looking for? Um, hypocritical. Mm-hmm. Like those are just, Oh man, that's such a big turnoff yeah. for me. I just, I have such a hard time following people. And even though I really try, like when, if you're leading in that way, it's not healthy. Yeah, It's not healthy for you. It's not healthy for them. Um, and that's an example where I think people are taking more from the opportunity of leadership and they're giving and they're yeah. doing it to satisfy their ego and uh, just like all of these things that we're talking about are usually methods to try to maintain or build ego. And I just, I don't have any time for it. So yeah. um, more simply put, don't be toxic. Yeah. Like, don't be toxic. Don't it, be toxic. It's, 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 it, uh, we talked about negativity on this podcast and how powerful, and I'm sure you would agree uh, based on the psychological piece to this and human behaviors, negativity is strong. It's, you know, toxicity in, in the, in the fire, in the fire stations is, is powerful. And if you're, if you're saying something and spreading negativity and then the next person is the next crew is uh, that, that there's so much 
a detriment to the culture, to the inside fire station, to to personal personal development when we're talking negativity all the time. And I, I think the psychological or sorry, the the statistical piece to this is it's uh, negativity can be so much more powerful um, and effective, if you will, than being positive. But when you're talking the exact, you know, antagonistic part of it, the opposite of, you know, shouldn't talk negativity that has so much more downstream effects, long term and short term than positivity ever will. And so when you say just and in short, don't be toxic. That is such a, in short, that's exactly what it is. If we're not toxic, we can, our organizations and our personnel will be in such a better place. Mm-hmm. One piece I want to capture, I want to make sure we capture this and uh, spend some time here is, is giving um, our listeners something tangible uh, to start doing. Because uh, this podcast, we're trying to grow leaders. We're trying to spread the conversation. So talking to three groups. And the first group is being, you know, to the, to the newer employee, right? That it could be a recruit, a probationary firefighter, or someone that's new in the organization, what's one thing that they can do uh, literally today to start growing as leaders in their new role in the organization? So you said, let me recharge, right? You said new employee. Yeah. So new kind of that, sorry. Good, good question. We'll, we'll hit both. So the first one is kind of a newer employee, a new recruit, new firefighter, probationary, or so we'll just say someone within the first few years, what's something that they could do. And then the second one will be just go into that new leader. It could be an aspiring officer or a newly officer both groups, what, what can they start doing to grow today? So I think, uh, you know, one of the things that I wish I could do over again when I was a newer employee was really learn to appreciate uh, that people knew more than I did and that it didn't have to present itself in a way that I thought it needed to. So just because they weren't out front training and leading training or always going to fire conferences, or they might have even seemed disengaged at work. Didn't doesn't mean that they don't have value. It doesn't mean they don't have something to teach me. Um, and so it, you know, put simply, like I didn't know shit. Like even if I thought I knew something, I didn't. I didn't know it. Um, and if I had had more of a growth mindset than a fixed mindset, then I think I would have made relationships and built relationships with people that would have added a lot to my career. Um, friendships would have developed, and I think if I'd let people show up in ways where I didn't pigeonhole them into certain perceptions, especially based on what other people were telling me, um, I think I would have been better for it. I, I, quite frankly, I would have been a better human being for it as well. Uh-huh. And so like, that's one of the things that I have maybe, you know, reflected in maturity, just really appreciating that. Um, and then bridging to the new leader question is now you've had a little success. Something's rewarded you for that. So now you think, you know, something, you still don't know shit. <laughs> like just, just reminding myself of that and avoiding the temptation to think that you have to have all the answers mm-hmm. and you have to solve all the problems, which is really not, it's not it. It's much more of a collaborative, like you are leading the collaborative effort. And we know this on the fire ground. Like we send minimum staffing three people to any problem that we have from someone falling to so a building being on fire, there's going to be at least three people on that. And obviously in the latter example, you get way more people, but at no point is an individual showing up first arriving unless a chief happens to be closer and then it's on them to fix. We understand leveraging the power of the company, the many minds, like not, that's one reason I wouldn't ever want to be police officers. They show up by themselves in most instances and then they have to handle these very volatile situations until their backup gets there. That's a terrible approach, um, which one is born out of, I guess, 
fiscal need. Uh, so let's not, if we're not going to do that on the fire ground, if we're going to take advantage of having different ideas, then why would the firehouse be any different? Why can't you leverage the same there? Yeah. Um, or as across a battalion, as you move up in the organization and the higher you get, the more you need to, to try to do that, create opportunities for participation. So like, that's probably the biggest piece is uh, if you're a new leader, just remember that your team uh, needs you less than you need them, quite frankly. Like oh. they totally will survive without you. They yeah. may not do as well, but they can survive just fine without you. Yeah. Uh, and treating it as a privilege. Um, yeah. So those, those two questions, that's how I would, would answer that. Uh, I love that. The growth mindset. We've talked about that quite a bit. Um, you know, having a growth, especially early in your career, but, uh, but certainly not uh, only, right. Even, you know, senior leaders, you know, people that are near retirement, Still, growth mindset is huge, right? We can all learn something new every day. What's the saying? If the day, the day you stop learning is the day you should retire. I mean, we having a growth mindset is just going to help us grow to be better individuals, better leaders, but also better teammates, if you will, better advocates for the organization. And then secondly, um, I love that piece. We've talked about that. You know, you don't have to have all the answers, right? I'm a, I'm a newer company officer as well. And, uh, you know, I think you speak to a lot of people when you say you don't have to have all the answers. I think just by have, saying that, hopefully inspires a lot of our listeners. You, you know what? Uh, I don't. Okay. That's that maybe that's motivating in the sense that there are people out there that do believe that you, you do have to have, you know, 99% of the answers before you take the next step in your career. And, and I think if we understand that we don't, that, 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 that kind of helps us all be in a better place. So, so uh, on the third piece here is now talk to senior leaders of organizations, right? Battalion chiefs and above, we'll say, what's something that they can do to grow as leaders. So this ties back into the answers for the first two questions is, guess what? You still don't know shit. <laughs> like, I Love hear it. all the time about uh, how people need to come up through every rank in the organization so that they, they learn the job that they're now supervising. And there's a lot of value to that, but that isn't necessarily the case, um, especially if you look at something as kind of coordinating collaboration and not having to have all the answers, then you don't have to have all the subject matter expertise and as complex as this mission has gotten in all the different facets that we have, whether it's technical rescue or fire marshal investigation, community education, paramedicine, like all the stuff we do on fire, how could you possibly know everything about everything? And that's just exhausting. So I say all that to say to set this up. As you move up in the organization, the experiences that the people that you leave behind are having are going to be fundamentally different whether it's the next day or whether it's a year or whether it's 15 years ago, a lot of times as leaders, we feel the urge to respond to the problems that we think we're seeing through the lens that we experience them. And it's a different world. It's mm -hmm. a different generation. It's different people are leading different needs. Like leading through COVID was definitely different than leading through probably anything else in most people's careers. Mm -hmm. it, and so you have to have this understanding that even though you have arrived in your mind, you know, mm -hmm. especially as a senior leader, because you've been rewarded more than once for success, you still have to have the humility that there are things you don't know and the things below you are changing and that in anything you're trying to influence, the ultimate authority really needs to still rest with the individual that's deploying the strategy. You know, and that's whatever cliches there are about the, the, the value of planning isn't in having the plan. Mm -hmm. Like it's the flexibility of being able to pivot off of that plan. Like um, no plan survives like impact. You, you need to have a default for people to work off of, mm -hmm. like and a shared appreciation for what could happen 
And then that leaves your bandwidth open for interpreting all the information that you weren't expecting to, yeah. to fix it. So the, the hopefully the theme that's answered there is a humility and, yeah. and the idea of learning and never stop learning. The things you're going to be learning about are probably going to be different as you move up the organization. But I don't want a firefighter to stop learning any more than I want the fire chief to stop learning. I want them to, to continue to challenge their perspective and grow as well. Because I feel like if that's flexible and adaptable, there's a good chance our organization will be much more likely to succeed than yeah. if they are themselves in that fixed mindset. Yeah. Oh, I love that. And I love the piece where you just said that, uh, you know, when you get up to that next level, whether it be the chief or even in my case, we'll just say lieutenant, uh, it is different. Uh, when you get to that level, you get to understand the changing of those below you because I'll just look at myself. Uh, when I was in the academy, I was I was a different, we'll just say recruit firefighter and probationary firefighter back when I was hired than the recruit firefighters, probationary firefighters of today. So I can't necessarily just apply all the concepts. Oh, when I was a probationary firefighter, I have to treat and interact because that's I was only that, you know, X years ago. Well, yes, understand that. But there's a new, it's a new generation. It's a new fire service, if you will. And I've always said that, you know, the fire service today is grayer than it's ever been, you know, and it's in society as well. So I love that piece about, you know, when you move up, you still don't know jack shit, if you will, because it's, it's such a true statement at every rank, not just at the fire chief level. So thank you for that. This piece uh, is, is, is my favorite piece because I, I lie all, through, all throughout this podcast because I say this next piece is my favorite piece. But this truly is my favorite piece because <laughs> in this podcast, it's about spreading the conversation. It's about having it and spreading it for others to listen, for others to engage wherever they're at, and for, for them to have the conversation even further down the stream. It's a leadership challenge. Leadership Challenge is where we ask our guest speaker to uh, to offer up and challenge an individual uh, on this podcast, someone for us to reach out to. Is there someone out there that uh, you believe would be a great candidate to come talk leadership with us here on the kitchen table? Yes, I have. Uh, there are many individuals, but the one that I was thinking about when you were reading off that question is Jeremy Sanders. And he does the Crew First Culture podcast, uh, and he also teaches... He's doing some really cool stuff uh, with Rick George as well uh, in the the tactical resiliency piece. But uh, it's been like I, I am only here because other people took an active interest and humored, quite frankly, and, and honestly, humored my perspectives on leadership and nourished them and challenged them. Uh, some people advocated for me and, and opened doors for me and. Uh, Jeremy is an individual who reached out early and often, and I consider myself very fortunate to have his friendship, and I learn as much from him as I hopefully impart on him. And so I would definitely love to hear him come on here and and answer some of these questions and, and have your listeners benefit from what he's learned. Oh, absolutely. Thank you so much. I uh, I don't know Jeremy Sanders, but I've seen Crew First Culture. I've listened. I think it was on Instagram where I'm seeing their stuff pop up, and it's powerful stuff. So mm -hmm. thank you for that leadership challenge. What I'll do is I'll uh, I'll reach out to you and gather his contact info at a later time and and uh, let him know that he's been leadership challenged by Benjamin Martin. Absolutely, so awesome. thrown yeah, under the bus. Yes, <laughs> no, and we've had a lot of uh, our our our, uh, our challenges, if you will, take us up on it, and they're like, "Oh, I'll get that guy back," and you know, at a later date and stuff. But it's awesome because it's it's the success of this podcast is literally. It just goes to every leader and speaker that wants to come out and share a message because without grabbing, you mentioned perspective, uh, we don't have perspective and we have, you know, one-sided, one-sided view on everything. And that's not what we want when we're talking about leadership, when we're talking about building a culture of growth. 
we need perspective and we need uh, different voices. And so thank you for, uh, first and foremost, and thank you for the challenge. Um, but let me throw this out there. I appreciate the conversation and everything we've talked about and unpacked today. This conversation I know could have gone for hours, but let's go here. Lasting leadership thoughts that you'd like to leave our listeners with before we close here on the kitchen table. Hmm. Oh, that's a profound question. It is. I know. <laughs> um, uh, let me think about that for a moment. Cause sure. I don't want to, I don't want to rush this or give you something that's superficial. All right. So I'll, this is, I guess I'll just talk about what I'm, I'm working on most and foremost and, and hope that it offers people, um, when I'm while I'm writing this dissertation, I'm focusing on leadership through the lens of something that's called integral theory. And integral theory is just a, a framework that sets up uh, the way that you could view any particular situation. Um, and so I look at leadership as a phenomena. It's a naturally occurring kind of organic process that almost defies explanation. Like as soon as you think you've got it figured out, then something else happens and you're like, oh, I didn't see that coming. So that's where that growth mindset, staying curious comes in. But the integral theory tries to attempt to explain it through four lenses. And it can be like, there's no limit to the lenses, but four is the number it, it typically chooses. And these areas are the ones that seem to be the most prevalent in what I'm studying. So the first is uh, intrapersonal and the opposite of that is interpersonal. So the intrapersonal is like, what's the internal monologue that Benjamin or Berlin have going on in their head? You know, how much self-esteem do they have on any issue? Like where it's their level of self-efficacy uh, or self-respect or self-reflection. It's, uh, I call it pillow talk. You know, you can talk yourself in and out of things so quickly and you take all the, the thoughts that you have in a day. And if those were actually a separate person standing beside you, saying those things to you, would you be friends with that person? Mm -hmm. Like, would you right. listen to that person? Are they credible? And and so anytime you're looking at why somebody does or doesn't do something, you absolutely need to acknowledge that that monologue is going on in their head, that uh, diatribe, so to speak. Then the interpersonal is where a lot of leadership is classically examined. That is where you get leadership models and theories of like, I do this as a leader, you do this as a follower. It looks at these exchanges. And so understanding that like somebody's internal monologue can absolutely be affected for the better or worse by the exchanges that they have with other people. And that's why I say treat it as a privilege yeah. and don't take it for granted right. because they can withdraw from it. They can lean into it. And, uh, and if you've ever had somebody really engage with you, it's really cool yeah. as, as a leader. Um, and you probably have earned that at least for the moment, yeah. but that's not the whole, uh, the whole picture. So even those things can be subverted by the organization's culture and the organization's climate. So climate yeah. is the piece that's temporary. Culture is the piece that's more deeply rooted. So when I say things like morale, that's an indication of an organization's climate. And so there are things that your organization may normally do that you need to pivot from or temporarily adjust in response to that morale, those yeah. issues. We are facing issues now. Uh, we had mentioned the, the short staffing, but there's other larger issues that we need to adapt some of the things. Doesn't mean we need to abandon them from our culture, but we need to at least adapt for the moment to try to get us through the other side of it. Um, and then culture at its simplest, like we did something, it worked, so we did it again. Yeah. And then we do it enough times, it becomes the social norm of, of what's expected. And so there are things that we would do in our private lives that we can't do when we come to work because it's not the organization of the culture. Mm -hmm. Or there's things that we wouldn't do in our private lives that we could normally do at work, but we can't right now because the climate's changed. Yeah. 
And all of these things, um, the last piece is systems, like the policies and procedures, the habits the organization has. These, All of these things are working simultaneously to influence the outcome of any given leadership exchange. And so knowing that, it, it almost feels like that's the universe of leadership. And what you're doing is a very small star in it, and it's bigger than you. Yeah. So that's good, because if it doesn't go your way, understand that it might not have been you. So that's okay. But at the same time, understand that you still are part of it and you should still try to try to do something about those things. Um, and so when anybody comes to me, it's like, what should you do? It's complex, to say the least, because as soon as you start doing anything in any one of those areas, you're starting to affect the other areas. Yeah. Uh, and so this is the last thing I'll leave you as an example of that. Uh, so our old fire chief had a open door policy. And uh, except it wasn't a policy, it wasn't actually outlined in a in an operation guideline or SOG or whatever you want to call it. So it didn't fall into the systems piece. It wasn't formally outlined in the organization, but interpersonally, it was offered to people. Oh, always, you know, come by my office. Now, culturally, not really supported because what do we have in the fire service? A hierarchy. Yeah. And an open yep. door policy completely subverts that. It, it go go right around it. And so really what we say in open door policy is, is, is if you have worked through your chain and you're still not satisfied, I want you to know you can come to me. If something happens when you're at work that is an issue of maintaining your dignity, so your race or your ethnicity like is assaulted, then you need to come to me. You know, there are certain things and an open door policy really falls more into the HR world, I think, than anything else. Like yeah. there's if something happens that, that threatens your safety. Or your physical safety or psychological safety. I want to, as an agency head, I would want to hear about it. Yeah. But at still, even then, I, there's still an opportunity to work through your chain unless that next person in line is the one that is, you know, the person that's doing those things too. So uh, if I was having this conversation with someone about, hey, and I've got this issue, I think I want to do this open door policy thing. So the feedback that I get from the person that I'm talking out loud to is going to influence whether I do or don't. And then I say, you know, Berlin told me that he didn't think it was a good idea. So I sleep on it. So I go to bed. That internal monologue kicks up. I wake up the next morning and I'm like, you know what? I think for me, it's best that I do do that. So I decide, despite the exchange that we've had, I'm going to go do it. So I go up here and I know that my chain of command isn't happy that I'm doing it because culturally it's not really accepted. And then I bump into somebody coming out of the fire chief's office and they're like, what are you doing? I'm like, I'm here for an open door meeting. Oh, I wouldn't. He just had an exit interview with somebody and he's pissed or such and such just got fired or he didn't get it. He's in a bad mood. Would I consider those things and reschedule or would I push through? And so anyway, all of those things, Love it. like if you just asked me about, should I go meet with the fire chief? I don't know. It depends. Yeah. That's going to be my answer. Yeah. Uh, But thinking through that and the time to think through that is uh is probably uniquely what I would offer to to end this podcast. and And I love that. I mean, it's every situation is different. As leaders and as individuals, Correct. we need to recognize the climate. You, I, to, to go with what you said, the climate is different. It's changing. We have to be able to recognize there's a right time to do things. There's a, maybe a wrong time, but to be able to understand, you know, timing is, uh, it, it counts for something. Uh, timing is everything, but timing accounts for something. Lastly, how do we find uh, Benjamin Martin in the future? Do you plan to come up to Pacific Northwest? Uh, you, ta- uh, you know, how do we find you? So I have got uh, several gigs coming up. So let me back up. If you go to embraceresistance.com, that's the website that's that hosts, uh, it'll host this podcast, all the other podcasts we've done, um, the blogs, the articles, all the writing, and then um, 
we've got a, a conference that we run as well. So you can find information about the fire ground commander. Um, and then uh, most major conferences uh, will will be there. So we'll be at FRI, I think right. is in Kansas in August. We'll be at Safer, which I think is in North Carolina uh, in August as well. I'll be at the Ozarks at um, oh, okay. the Fire Revolution at the end of July. Um, and so uh, as well as we like if you email us and ask to host a class, we'll, we'll bring the class to you and do it for the whole department or, or group we've done. And we do this for the fire service as well as uh, people that have nothing to do with the fire service at all. Uh, a group of accountants was one of my favorite classes because yeah. it's all people based things. Right. Yes. So like they same same people, different stories, different themes, but yes. like same people. And so they were able to laugh at the same jokes and, and okay. all that kind yeah. of stuff. Um, and then I'll try to post stuff out to the Facebook page, uh, Embrace Resistance as well, just a little short motivational things to, to yeah. keep you going. Um, so any anywhere in there. And my email is on the website, so don't yes. hesitate to to reach out if you want to discuss something more private. Absolutely. Embrace the resistance, listeners. Uh, and this is Captain Benjamin Martin. So, uh, Cap, I, I do want to thank you again. I know it's, it's taken a while for us to connect, uh, but I heavily resonate with a lot of this this message here. I wish we could talk for hours. I love talking to psychology behind all of this stuff. I love talking about the human behavior. I love talking about human interaction, communication, and, and humility and all the concepts that you talked about. Um, so thank you again so much for your time today. I hope we connect uh, again in the future. I hope there's, you know, we can meet again, whether it be on the phone, whether it be a podcast or in person. Um, but why don't I close uh, very quickly here? Thank you, everybody, for tuning in today to the Kitchen Table. We truly hope that you found this time valuable, and we hope that we've inspired you to take action, to lead, and to spread this leadership conversation. Till next time, be safe, be intentional, and stay curious.